Well, Father, we come before you just grateful to be here where we can sit under your word. Lord, your word gives life, it sustains, it speaks of you and your truth, and I pray that we will value the word more than anything else as we learn how the word can go to war against some of those temptations that seem to overwhelm us. I pray that this will be a needed correction or encouragement or reinforcement, depending on where anybody is, and I pray that your spirit will work through this message. In Christ's name, amen. Well, it was, um, it was April of 2007, and we had an elder meeting at my, my old church, and the chairman made it very clear at the beginning of the meeting that the agenda has been called off. We have a new agenda. It's not a good sign. And that's when my friend, the music pastor, walked into the room and through tears and sobbing communicated that he had broken the covenant of, of marriage, committed serial adultery with multiple men. And we were shocked, I sent shockwaves through the entire church. And this music pastor was really a good friend of mine. I really always enjoyed spending time with him. He was always insightful, thoughtful. And I remember after the, the carnage of the next few Sundays, uh, we sat down, we had coffee together. And I knew that he knew the word. Uh, I knew that he knew that in doing these things, he would lose his ministry position, he would soil his reputation, um, eventually he would lose his family. And I asked him, um, so why, why did he do it? And this is what he explained to me. He told me that he would just feel this building urge and desire start to well up inside of him and it would just get stronger and stronger and build and build and build until he indulged and then it would go away and then the cycle would start again he felt the temptation of overwhelming indulgence he felt like he could not change even if he wanted to the temptation was too great When Jesus was baptized, he was declared the beloved son of God. And then he was taken into the wilderness. And we read this fascinating account in Luke 4, verses 1 through 13. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan, was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil and he ate nothing during those days, and when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time, and said to him, 
to you I will give all this authority and their glory for it has been delivered to me and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands, they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, it is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Now, the, the purpose of this is to certify that he truly is the Son of God. He doesn't prove himself to be the Son of God by doing what Satan tells him to do. He proves that he's the Son of God by doing exactly what God wanted him to do. Now, it's really interesting how this comes on the heels of a genealogy that ends with Jesus being the son of Adam. Luke is making it very clear that Jesus did this as a man. You see, when you look at Jesus fighting this temptation, uh, it's very easy for us to dismiss it as some paradigm for how to fight temptation ourselves because, well, Jesus is God after all. If I was the all-powerful Lord of the universe, I could probably fight temptation myself. But that's when you have to remember that while Jesus is completely divine, everything that makes God God is true of Jesus, everything that makes a man a man is true of him as well. He is a man like Adam. Adam was born without a sinful nature, but he is not less of a man. Jesus was born without a sinful nature, but he still is a man. And so one of the questions that often comes when we look at a passage like this is, could Jesus have sinned, right? Could he have sinned? If he was a man, could he have sinned? Like, we, we know that while on earth he set aside the free exercise of his divine attributes, right? He didn't appeal to the godness part, but could he have sinned? Well, the answer is not really. You see, he was divine. Sin was never a possibility, right? He, he was going to make it to the very end. The question is, did he resist this temptation by appealing to his godness or by appealing to his humanity? Did he do it acting as a human the whole time or did he have to fall back to divinity? Uh, in 20... 13, a woman by the name of Diane Nyad became the first person to swim the channel, the 110-mile channel between Cuba and Florida, brought 110 miles in the open ocean. Now, she wasn't a moron, so she didn't go alone. You know, there was actually a, a small flotilla of, of boats that were around her. Now, she was going to make it to, to Florida, right, when she did that. The question is, was she going to make it in the water the whole way? Or was she going to have to give up and get on the boat and finish the journey? And so when you look at Jesus, he was not going to give in to temptation. 
But was he going to do it as a man or was he going to fall back on his divine attributes to do it? Well, the answer is he went through this whole process as a man in the flesh. And as he does it, it gives us a it gives us an understanding about how you can fight temptations. In fact, there's, there's three different temptations here. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to talk about each temptation in a different sermon. But for our purposes, for this temptation is really the temptation of indulgence, right? What do you do when those physical desires begin to simmer up inside of you and you feel like you can do nothing but indulge them? How do you resist? And what we're going to go through is we're going to look at the setup for the temptation, the anatomy of the first temptation, and then the answer to the temptation. Okay, so we're going to get big picture first. Uh, the setup for the temptation. Let's go back to Luke 3, 21 through 22. Now, when all the people were baptized and when Jesus had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened. The Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. Right? This is the coronation of the Messiah. We've, you know, Jesus has kind of been this mysterious figure in Luke until now, right? He, he speaks as a baby. Well, I mean, he doesn't speak as a baby. He, he cried as a baby. But he spoke as a, as a young man, but he still is somewhat of a mystery, and he shows up. John the Baptist is you know, baptizes him, and then all the members of the Trinity are in one place at one time, where God the Father endorses him, and the Holy Spirit comes upon him, and so now Jesus is empowered and led by the Holy Spirit. And this is really a, a, a high point, right? He made it through 30 years, and, and God approves of him as the beloved son. And you know what's really interesting is often after different peaks you have in life, comes a season of temptation. You guys remember the story of Elijah? It's like my favorite Old Testament story. I'd have my kids reenact it, right? You have, you, have, you have his duel with the prophets of Baal, right? Where they offer up, you know, they build an altar and they call on Baal, the sky god, to ignite this sacrifice and they're cutting themselves, wailing. And he's trash-talking them the whole time, Right? Keep on calling. I think he's on the toilet. I mean, that's literally what he's saying, right? That's why I love the story. <laughs> and then Elijah kind of shows up, <sighs> cuts up an ox, digs a trench around it, and then he just dunks water on it. It's like more water. And then he prays, and God sends this beam of fire to just incinerate it. And then everyone yells, the Lord, he is God. And they all rise up and they kill all the prophets of Baal, right? It's in the Bible, right? Like I said, I loved reenacting that one with my kids. <laughs> and what's really interesting is after that spiritual high, when he was expecting revival, you have Elijah going out into the desert and just wanting to quit and give up, right? After seasons of tremendous spiritual victory, when something happens, there can often be a, a, a time when you're just vulnerable to temptation. Now, with Jesus, we read that temptation just didn't happen. It was part of the plan. Look at verse 4.1. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan 
and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness. For 40 days being tempted by the devil, and he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. No, Jesus is full of the Holy Spirit. Remember, he didn't operate using his own power, but God gave him delegated power through the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit not only gave him power, but also told him what to do. And there's a clear command, you, Jesus, my beloved son, are to go to the wilderness, and you are to stay there for 40 days. Now, was this just some sort of arbitrary, you know, I think he ought to go to the wilderness for 40 days and fast and be tempted? Or, or is there a deeper meaning to this? Now, when you talk to a knowledgeable audience about the scriptures and you hear wilderness and the number 40, what comes to your mind? Right? After the Exodus, when, the, when Israel was called and rescued out of Egypt, and God was going to commission them to be this kingdom of priests to, to broadcast his fame to the nations. He was going to take them to the promised land, but they underwent 40 years of testing in the wilderness. And so it's no accident that Jesus, who's going to fulfill this function, is going to do what Israel does not do. And this is reinforced by the different quotations that he has where you see some of the primary temptations of Israel in the wilderness. Remember how much they would whine about how God hasn't given them enough to eat? Well, Jesus would quote from Deuteronomy 8.3, man shall not live on bread alone. There was another incident when Israel was complaining that God just brought them out there to die because he's not giving them any water. And God, if you loved us, you'd give us water to drink. And he says, Deuteronomy 6.16, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. When they decided to worship other gods because they got tired of waiting for Moses to come down from the mountain with this covenant that God was making with them, they worshiped uh, basically threw a bunch of gold into the fire, and what do you know? An idol came out of it, and they worshiped this cow and said, this is the Lord your God. But Deuteronomy 6.13 says, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Now, all, all this to say, there was a reason for the 40 days. It was to show that Jesus is going to succeed where Israel failed. He was going to be the one who would mediate God's salvation to the nations. He was going to be the, the, the true Israel. This doesn't mean that there's no future for Israel. There absolutely is. But it does show that Jesus was not some sort of ascetic. God is just not sending, God's not sending him on some arbitrary mission to, to fail. There was a purpose. He knew the rules. You need to be in the wilderness and you need to go 40 days without giving into these temptations. And all the while, the devil's there personally tempting him, challenging him, prodding him, provoking him, trying to get him to fail. So even though he did not have sinful flesh, he was weak, he was frail, but there was a purpose. Right? And I think that's something for you guys to keep in mind, that when there is a temptation, by all means, pray to the Lord, lead us not into temptation. But sometimes when those temptations come, there is a purpose for them. There is a purpose. We read in James 1, 2 through 3, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of faith produces endurance. 
Jesus had a purpose in his testing. You have a purpose in your testing. There's no accidents. This is of the Lord. It may be Satan doing it, but the only reason why Satan is allowed to do it is because the Lord is letting him do it. So with that established, let's dive into the anatomy of the temptation. Look at Luke 4, 3. The devil said to him, if you are the son of God, command this stone to become bread. Now, this is an invitation to break a fast early by turning a stone into a nice, succulent, juicy, yeah, bread could be juicy, moist, <laughs> loaf of bread, a giant sourdough loaf, and turn that little rock into some butter. Oh, Jesus, it could be so good. Now, have you guys, like, honestly been hungry? Like, really hungry, like, I forgot what food tastes like. I've gone three hours. No, I'm talking like three days without food, all right? Like Jesus, he lived in a time when people didn't have extra belly fat. Only the rich had their fill. He was going without food. He likely had water because thirst is not the issue. But his, his body was converting muscle into calories so that he can live. When you are truly starving, the immune system is compromised, and so infections and all this other stuff began to come upon him. I mean, when you think about Jesus at this moment, think about a skeleton with skin who hurts to move, who is fatigued, who is worn out. That's where he is. And in this period of physical weakness, he says, if you are the son of God, command this stone to become bread. Now, this little statement has, um, I think, points to three realities of temptation, okay? Three realities of temptation. One, temptation often preys upon our appetites. Temptation preys upon our appetites. Now, as human beings, we have various appetites. You have an appetite for food, appetite obviously for water. We'll put that in the same category. Appetite for sleep, an appetite for, for even sex, right? Now, what's interesting is feeling hunger pangs is not sinful. Feeling tired is not sinful. But what happens when these cravings and these appetites reach to such a level that there is a fork on the road between satisfying your appetites and satisfying the Lord? Now, when the Jews were tempted in the desert, we read this account in Luke 16, 1 through 3. They set out from Elam, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin. Ironic which is between Elam and Sinai on the 15th day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in Egypt. 
when we sat by meat pots and ate bread to the full, for you have brought us into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Now, this is a rational statement. They have an irrational memory of what life was like in Egypt, right? It's like they, were, they lived in the, on a cruise ship where there's this unlimited buffet. They forgot about the part where they had to get their own straw to make bricks. They romanticized the past because they were thinking with their stomachs. Now, they're on the wilderness you know, for a number of weeks, probably ran short of supplies. And now they start accusing God and slandering him and, and basically saying, this is just theocratic murder that you're doing right now. Right? They were enslaved to their bodily urge to eat. What about sleep? Remember when, when Jesus went to the Garden of Gethsemane, he, he took a small posse, Peter and a couple of others, and he gives them this command. In Matthew 26, 37 through 38. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled, and then he said, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. Now, when you keep watch, you know what the key to keeping watch is? Keeping your eyes open. Staying conscious. Okay? And, and in verse 40, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, so you could not keep watch with me one hour? I mean, I can imagine Peter. I mean, it was a long day, very stressful. Jesus told him to keep watch. And, and he's just thinking to himself, you know, if I'm going to keep watch, I might as well pray. You know, and if I pray, I can't look at these trees. I'm going to close my eyes and think about the Lord. On my knees, you know, I've been humbled by everything that's going on. I'm going to just prostrate myself before the Lord on the ground. And the next thing you know, Jesus is waking you up. Because he couldn't control his appetite. 1 Corinthians 7, 5. Do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time. That you may devote yourselves to prayer. He's talking to husbands and wives here. But then come back together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Paul tells married couples that if you're going to abstain, don't do it forever. You need to come back together because otherwise Satan will tempt you to a lack of self-control. You will be tempted to find sexual satisfaction beyond the confines of marriage. So all this to say, food, sleep, and sex are wonderful gifts from God. A society cannot continue if those things are lacking. But each of these appetites has their own ability to trigger temptation. When our youngest was three, he would have a personality change when he was hungry. And he would actually push Becky into the kitchen and kind of like stand guard like he's a soccer goalie, you know, making sure that she would never leave. And whenever she did leave, he'd kind of get in the way and almost demand a snack as the toll, right, to escape the kitchen, right? Panic would ensue. I mean, what happens to you when you get hungry, <laughs> when your blood sugar is low? I mean, hangry is just like the perfect word, isn't it? I mean, what happens... If you have a rough night's sleep, 
right? You, you're sleeping soundly, and then you hear, boom, the thunder, and then the rain. And, and you know, it's not just the pitter-pitter-pitter. It's like the sheet. And so you get up. Well, I'm already up. Might as well go to the bathroom. And then you get back into your bed. And then this thought crosses your mind. I wonder if the basement's still dry. <laughs> You've been there? And you think, uh, no, it's okay. I, I had the people look at it 10 years ago. I'm sure it's fine. <laughs> or is it? You go to sleep and you have a dream that you go downstairs and there's two inches of, of rain in the basement. And, you, and then next thing you know, there goes the night and you haven't slept. I mean, what kind of temptations are you going to be feeling at that moment? What happens if your spouse has to leave to spend time with her or his family? What kind of temptations will you have? Or let's say you're in a relationship and the wedding date's a long way off. Now, feeling those urges is not wrong, right? I mean, we, we have these urges. That's part of the way God designed us. But there are times in our lives where we can't fulfill those urges. Where you cannot fulfill those urges and honor God at the same time. Right? When your spouse is out of town, that just can't be satisfied. If you are not married yet, that just can't be satisfied. If you wake up, if you can't get any sleep, that doesn't mean that you could just not drive your kids to school or skip church. If you're hungry... Yeah, it would be nice if you had a Snickers, but when you have to walk into that meeting that's very important to your boss, you have to be there, hungry or not. There are situations where your appetites, which are good, will be tested in the midst of temptation. Secondly, temptation often challenges our identity. Okay, Temptation challenges our identity. Notice what Satan says. If you are the son of God. Now, God just told Jesus, you are my beloved son. With you, I'm well pleased, right? God just told him, you are my beloved son. And now Satan is testing him. If you really are the son of God. Now, he's not denying it. He's not saying you're not the son of God. I'm just saying that if you are, maybe you ought to reconsider why you're just putting yourself through this. I mean, after all, if you are the, the son of God, maybe, uh, maybe you can turn the stone into bread. I mean, the sons of God, I mean, you're the son of a very important person. You're the son of the Lord King of the universe. You're a prince, my friend. And princes don't starve. They feast. If you are the son of God, who says that the son of God has to do this and fast in the desert for 40 days? Right? Satan wants to redefine what it means for Jesus to be the Son of God. It begins to challenge his identity of what being a Son of God means. Now, in my ministry, I've had the privilege of working with many people who struggle with same-sex attraction. And one facet of that, and I think what's really unique to this culture, is how it becomes an identity. I'm gay. I'm a lesbian. I'm bi. I'm, I'm transgender, right? It is their identity and to deny this urge is not just to deny this urge and still maintain my identity to deny this urge is to deny who I am as a human being you know and the solution to that is to help them understand that one your identity is you're made in the image of God 
that God assigns his identity to you. You are his image bearer. You are to represent him. And I love the term Christian, right? Because when we say we're a Christian, I'm a Christian, means I'm a little Christ. I'm a follower of Christ. My identity is Jesus Christ. That's my identity. And so there is kind of a subtle thing, like how you are made, you are to be defined by your urges instead of being defined by the Lord. If you are the son of God, give in to this urge because that's what sons of God do. They're able to satisfy their desires. If you're not able to satisfy your desire, then what kind of prince are you? Versus Jesus, heard from the Lord, you are my beloved son. I think another one might be, and this is very subtle, I've been good. I deserve a little indulgence. You deserve a break today. Yeah, at that moment, what are you doing? You are putting yourself as the center of the universe. You deserve a break today. God wants me to be happy. The way this relationship works is that God serves me and serves my happiness, not the other way around. Do you see how that's a slight twist in identity? Still dressed up in religious language, by the way, which is often what happens. So Satan is trying to change his identity and change what it means to be the son of God. And then thirdly, he seeks to use ungodly means to satisfy God-given urges. Now, would it have been wrong for Jesus to eat? Or would it have been wrong for Jesus to turn stone into bread? Well, later on in his ministry, didn't he not multiply the bread into 5,000 5, people? I mean, he clearly did it in the past. Jesus broke and ate bread. Eating bread was not the problem. Turning a stone into bread was not a problem. What was a problem was shortcutting a trial. He was being asked by Satan to quit the marathon at mile 25. Right? He is almost there. You see, there are different ways when people are dealing with the full weight of temptation that they try to take the shortcut. And I'll give you two of them. One is just by indulgence. When the temptation is strong, and, and let's face it, is temptation comfortable? It is tormenting. You are just bothered by it. It's building. It becomes consuming. And, and so one way of dealing with it is to indulge it. It's to indulge it. Right? You, you know that you need to practice self-control, especially in the area of eating. Proverbs 23, 20 through 21. Be not among the drunkards or among the gluttonous eaters of meat, for the drunkard and the gluttons will come to poverty and slumber will clothe them with rags. Now, let's say it's the day after the 4th of July. You had a big blowout party. And in the refrigerator, there's the apple pie, half of it left. Perfect to feed your family. There's also six hot dogs. Perfect to feed your family. A half a canister of a potato salad perfect to feed your family and a half bag of chips perfect to feed your family well it rained you're awake you're thinking about the basement flooding you can't go back to sleep so you thought you know maybe a little digestion would help me go to sleep all the blood will go into my stomach and i'll just kind of drift off i wonder what's in the fridge oh my <laughs> hello there apple pie <laughs> Oh, and those hot dogs were so good. You know, nobody will miss one. 
I'll just, you know, have my youngest go without it. It'd be good for him. <laughs> There'll be five hot dogs instead of six. And you know, all those calories, they'd probably be better if they were in my body than my, my family's body. You know, I think I can handle it more than them. And those chips, um, well, that does nobody any good, so for their sake, I'll go ahead and take it. And next thing you know, the meal is gone, right? But guess what? You're not tempted anymore. <laughs> you don't want to have another hot dog or apple pie for a long time, right? That's indulgence. If you give in to the temptation, you won't have it anymore. That's a shortcut. Another one would be inoculation. All right, when you inoculate someone, you... you something or some animal, you give them a small dose of the disease so they can build up some antibodies, right? So you do kind of light exposure. When I lived in Hungary, we spent a summer at a uh, Hungarian resort. Actually, it wasn't a, re- it was a resort town. We lived in a dinky college dormitory that was 50 yards away from the beach. And, and we would host 50 students from the States who would come in and we'd teach Hungarians English and the gospel. Now, we're 50 yards from the beach of the largest lake in, in Hungary, and uh, we'll just say that in Hungary, the men and the women wear the same swimsuits. So it was obviously a source of temptation. And one earlier person who would come, this was years ago, he would take all the men on the beach and just point out all the body parts and say, big deal. That was his way of inoculating them. But you know what? Inoculation, what it leads to is some people should be tempted by things, right? If you're not tempted by something that should tempt you, it may not be because you're inoculated, it's because you've hardened your heart. You're not scandalized by what should scandalize you. Your conscience is weak, right? So that is not the solution either. The solution is to endure the temptation. And that brings us to the answer to temptation. It's very simple. In 4.4, Jesus answered him and said, man shall not live by bread alone. He quotes scripture. And a specific scripture that makes it very clear that as great as bread is, right, who doesn't love a good meal, right? As wonderful as that ribeye steak, that lemon meringue pie, that German chocolate cake, that fruit salad, as wonderful as all those things are, it doesn't beat the word of God and the will of God, right? He, he refuses to complain because he knows that there's greater joy and greater pleasure and greater delight in honoring God by honoring his word than in taking some sort of shortcut. You see, and that's really the battle line because a lot of people look at doing the word of God and obeying these commands as good for you, but not good, right? A garden salad with fat-free dressing is good for you. But what's really good are those Burger King onion rings with heaps of ketchup. Oh, that's good. And so we kind of create this dichotomy where what's good for you and what's good is separate. Like reading the Bible is like going on a diet. (laughs) But that's not how the Bible presents itself. The Bible presents itself as high-calorie goodness. Psalm 19, 7 through 10 The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. 
The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. And this is the key point, right? It's not diet word. This is not a, a diet soda here. More to be desired they are than fine than gold, even fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb, right? There was nothing better than honey in that day. The word of God is that good. And so part of the key is to understand the goodness of the word of God. If the word of God tells you not to do something, there is a good reason for it. If your parents tell you not to drink the Drano, there is a good reason for it, even though it has a pretty color, right? If the word of God forbids something or tells you to do something, you need to trust that this is good and lead to greater sweetness. I mean, have you ever seen somebody who seriously just disobeys the word of God? What's the state of their marriage? What's the state of their soul, the state of their lives, right? There is a goodness. The path to blessing is obeying the word of God. Secondly, is to submit your appetites to the word of God. In Philippians 3, 18 through 19, For many walk of whom I often tell you, and now tell you, even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, and whose glory is their shame. Set the mind on earthly things. I mean, when people define themselves by their appetites, Right? And their God is their appetite. They're ruled from within, not from without. And the thing is, if you're ruled by your appetite, you're controlled by anyone who can control and bait your appetites. Instead of being ruled by the king. See, and, and what this means is you need to let your body know and let your appetite know who is boss. So Proverbs 6, 10 through 11. A little sleep and a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. Your poverty will come in like a vagabond and your need like an armed man. So part of controlling your appetite, is it wrong to sleep? No. But you need to let your sleeping body know when it's boss. And that means you get up when the alarm clock goes off. Don't snooze your way to 8.30, right? You get up when you're supposed to get up. 1 Corinthians 6.12, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. I mean, there is something to be said for looking at a hot fudge Sunday. Okay, a brownie hot fudge Sunday with whipped cream on it, little sprinkles, and then not eating it. Somebody offering you a chocolate chip cookie, and you say, I'll take a pass. Do you know why? Because if you don't tell your body who's boss, if you can't deny those non-sinful urges... What makes you think you'll be able to deny the sinful ones? Proverbs 7, 21 to 23. With many persuasions, she, this is the adulterous woman, she entices him. With her flattering lips, she seduces him. Suddenly follows her as an ox goes to the slaughter or as one in fetters to the discipline of a fool. Until an arrow pierces through his liver as a bird hastens to the snare so he does not know that it will cost him his life. You know, sex is used as bait to pull a young man into a foolish, soul-crushing decision. You see, if you never train your appetite to deal with food or sleep, right? What makes you think you'll be able to deal with sex when that temptation comes? So I, I used to think that the longer you go without a temptation, the weaker the temptation gets. But I've kind of changed my thinking on that. Temptation 
is always going to be there because he had the world and, the, and Satan fighting as hard as they possibly can to keep you on their leash, right? But the reason why temptation can seem to be weaker is because the muscles of self-control get stronger. The stronger your muscles of self-control, the weaker the temptation will seem. And so if you are tempted to look at porn, do you know what you do? You skip dessert, you get up on time, you make your bed, and you read your Bible. If you get into the habit of telling your appetites who's boss and exercising self-control, it's a global issue, really, right? Self-control can't just be in one area of life and not the other. It has to be something that dominates your life because that is something that the Holy Spirit wants to build inside of you, which, which brings us to the last point. One is you, you look to Christ, right? In Hebrews 4.15, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things and yet without sin. Right? Jesus knows what it's like to undergo this temptation, but he was able to fight it off. And you think to yourself, well, <laughs> sure, he fought it off, but he was God. Well, he operated as a man. Well, he was without a sin nature. Well, he had Satan actually trying to persuade him to sin directly. None of you have ever incurred any kind of assault of that magnitude, right? I mean, you think about if you have a board up, you know, standing upright and you put it on top of a hill on a windy day, that board knows the full force of the wind because it is always standing against it. If it gets knocked down, it won't feel it at all, right? A lot of couples don't you know, they may not understand the full weight of temptation before marriage because they made mistakes before that, right? When you go the whole way, you feel the full force, and Jesus felt the full force of temptation. But here's the other thing. He did not use his divine power to fight temptation, but he still used divine power. He used divine power from the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit fortified him and strengthened him and do you know what if you are a blood-bought born-again christian the same holy spirit that directed him and filled him directs and fills you i think one of the great promises of scripture is found in galatians 5 16 where jesus says but i say not jesus paul word of god still but i say walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh you get that? If you walk by the Spirit, if you are directed by the Spirit's will and direction and power, you will not give in to the desires of the flesh. And what are the desires of the flesh? Well, for the desires of the flesh, 17 and following, are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law, for the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual morality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. You know, one of the reasons why some people can't stave off the temptation it's because they don't have the Spirit of God. They're not born again. And perhaps your struggle with sin is a reminder that something has to change in your life. 
But when you do have the Spirit, this is the promise, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Right? When your flesh is crucified with Christ, when you look to Jesus, who offered his life as a flawless, perfect sacrifice on the cross, he took the righteous rage of God in your place and was raised from the dead. When you look to him, go to him, surrender to him, you become born again and the spirit is inside of you so that you don't have to give into the temptation anymore. You don't have to sin. You don't have to give into that indulgence. You don't have to fulfill that appetite in ungodly ways. You have the ability to say no to each and every impulse, to practice self-control, to resist and, and realize the great and wonderful truth that there is something more joyful and pleasant and pleasurable than the finest bread in the world, right? And that is to be in a right relationship with God. So enjoy food, enjoy sleep, and under the right parameters, enjoy intimacy. But also understand that the greater joy than satisfying all of those appetites is to be found in a righteous and right relationship with Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Well, Father, I come before you just grateful for this word. Thank you for the Holy Spirit, the example of Jesus, the sovereign orchestrations of you, Father. And I pray for anyone here who feels overwhelmed by temptation and feels like they can't win, that this would give them hope, that they will seek help, seek assistance, and claim the promises given to them. I pray for anyone who's on the outside looking in, who's wondering about your goodness, perhaps are flirting with the world, wondering if that's something that they really want, that they will see that following you and seeking you is the greatest blessing that they could ever experience and that they can be liberated from the deceits and the lies of Satan. I pray that they will surrender themselves to you, surrender their identity to you, that you will take them, change them, transform them. And I pray that as a church, that'll be our mission too, is to bring others to you. In Christ's name, amen.